Today we continue our study from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we look at the attitude of Christ, we especially focus our attention on unity. It seems to me that from Genesis to Revelation, God is interested in unity. We believe in the Trinity, and yet there is unity within the Godhead. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6 here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So we believe in the Trinity, and yet there is a sense of oneness within the Trinity. The Bible says when a man and a woman are married, that the two shall become one flesh. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prayed for the unity of his body, the church. He prayed, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. In the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the church. He prayed for you and for me. And his prayer was that we might be one, that there might be a sense of unity within the body. And yet we know that has always been difficult within the church. There's been great division, a great struggle concerning unity. Paul and Barnabas were followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, and yet they became separated as a result of John Mark. They went on a missionary journey, took John Mark with them. John Mark decided that he wanted to go back home and did so. When they started their next missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to go and get John Mark and have him to go. Paul didn't. And so there was a division that occurred. And the Bible says, and there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. So we're talking about the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And the Bible says that there was such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took John Mark and went on his missionary journey, and Paul took Silas and went in a different direction. You are aware that within the New Testament church there has oftentimes been division. That's especially true concerning the church at Corinth. It was also true in the New Testament church as recorded in Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So in the New Testament church, there was a division within the church because one group felt that the other group was getting more attention than they were. And it is generally believed that is where the deacons came from. Not in the division, but to correct it. You, you, you're reading into this on your own. I'm not saying that they did that. I'm saying that the deacons came about to fix the fellowship. Not to be a part of the division, but to bring the people together. That was in Acts chapter 6. And the church today still has problems with division. We look at all the churches around and think sometimes, boy, we must be really committed to missions. No, not really. It's just that we can't get along with each other. And that's generally the reason we have so many churches. That's reflected oftentimes in the names chosen for the church. How many Harmony Baptist churches are there? Which generally means there was no harmony in the last one. Or Grace Baptist Church. 
which means there was no grace in the last one. Or New Hope Baptist Church, which means there was no hope the last time. And so there has always been this division, and yet it is the heart of God that there is a sense of unity within his people. So that's going to be our focus. Take your Bibles, turn with me as we continue the study to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul begins in our text by stressing those things that motivate us to unity. Look at verse number 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. So I want you to look at these things Paul mentions that encourage us to unity. First of all, he mentions encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement means one who stands beside you to encourage you. So he is saying then that Christ comes alongside us to encourage us to unity, and he is our example of unity. He is our example of love, and in his love there are no moral limits. He loves both the saint and the sinner. Now, not just uh, the good people, not just a particular people. The Bible says that he loves all people. God proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, ladies and gentlemen, God does not begin to love you when you become worthy of his love. The Bible says that even in your sin, even in my sin, God proved his love to us. So there are no moral limits in our in his love. There's no racial limits. Jesus loved both the Jew and the Samaritan. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. He is an example of love. And so he comes alongside us to encourage us and to provide us an example of love because there is no unity without love. Have you noticed that? That unless we are willing to love, there can be no unity. 
He is also our example of forgiveness because there can be no unity where there is no forgiveness. And Jesus is an example of forgiveness. The woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus. The religionists stood there with rocks in their hands ready to stone her. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. He was willing to forgive. He prayed for the soldiers who crucified him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So the Bible then says that if we are going to have unity, then Jesus comes alongside us to encourage us to unity through love, through forgiveness, and he is our example. He is also our example of acceptance. One of the things... uh, Early in my ministry, I began to notice as I read the Bible is how different the disciples were. They came from different backgrounds. They had different professions. They were different politically. They were very different. And yet Jesus brought them all together because Christ was willing to take people where they were and accept them that he might lead them to where they needed to be. I watched this. Perhaps some of you did the dedication of the Billy Graham Library on television. And uh, one of the things that repeatedly was said on there is how he accepted people. How Billy Graham was willing to reach out to people and accept people. And President Carter was there. President Clinton was there. President, uh, former President Bush was there. And they all were talking about how he was willing to accept people. And I I thought as I listened to that, how like Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. You see, he is willing to accept you. We only want to accept sometimes people who are like us. And I see these strange people, these strange looking people going by. And they got, you know, they got steel bars sticking through their nose and things hanging from their ears and all that. And I think, my goodness, who let them out? And then I read the scripture and it says that Jesus accepted people. You see, that's what the Bible is saying, that Christ comes alongside us to encourage us to unity. And then he mentions another motivation, consolation of love. The word consolation is two words, which means alongside and to call. So now Jesus calls us to his side that we might love others. You see, Christ is the manifestation of God's love. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So Jesus then manifests God's love. And then once we become His child, He commands that you and I are to love others. The Bible says in 1 John 4:11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the Bible says that Jesus is the manifestation of God's love, and the Scripture says that if we are His child, then we are to love one another. And then thirdly, he mentions the fellowship of the Spirit. Our fellowship with the Holy Spirit brings about unity. The word fellowship that is used there is the word koinonia. It has two basic ideas. First of all, it means fellowship. We enjoy being together, don't we? That's the reason most of us can't lose any weight. You know, we get together and eat all the time. You know, We're having an ice cream fellowship tonight, aren't we? 
You know, that, and that's a part of what it means. But the primary meaning is partnership. We partner with the Holy Spirit and desire unity. That's primarily what it means. Koinonia is partnership, that we are partners in Christ, that we partner with the Holy Spirit. Then he mentions affection and compassion that brings about unity. Affection speaks of the inward condition of the Christian's heart. And it could be translated tender mercies. Folks, if you are a child of God, now understand, I'm not saying if you're a Baptist or Methodist or something else. If you're a child of God, there is tender mercy within your heart. Now, you might try to quench it, but if you're a child of God, you can't. You might try to deny it, but if you're a child of God, you can't. You might try to run from it, but if you're a child of God, you can't. Because that's the nature of being a believer. So he mentions there uh, affection, which speaks of the inward condition of the heart of the believer, and then compassion, which refers to our outward expression of that. So we have affection on the inside, compassion on the outside. And the word compassion that is used means to exercise pity. It means that we care about people. So when then we know Jesus Christ as Savior, there is affection on the inside, there is compassion on the outside. So the motivation for unity, he mentions encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, and compassion. Then he gives us three indicators of our unity in Christ. The first is oneness in verse number two. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, he defines that oneness, or he describes that oneness when he says that we are to be of the same mind. As believers, we are to be of the same mind concerning clear scriptural teachings. When the scripture is clear about something, then we ought to have the same mind concerning it. For instance, concerning the salvation, there's only one way of salvation. There's not seven different ways of salvation. The Bible says that salvation is in Christ. If one does not know Him, one does not go to the Father. So salvation then is in Christ. We're to be at the same mind, the same love. As the people of God, we ought to love the same things, which is the things of God. And he says united in spirit, and that literally means spirit with spirit. Our souls beat together in tune with Christ, and we're united in spirit. So one of the indicators of unity within a church, within the body, is oneness. Same mind, same love, same spirit. I know that raises some questions when you say that. And there are those who say, well, does that mean then that we all are supposed to believe the same thing? I'm not saying that at all. Those things where the Bible is dogmatic, we need to be dogmatic. On those essentials of the faith, we need to be of the same mind. But there are some things that we interpret differently. That's the reason we have different churches, different denominations. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are some people who, in other denominations, don't interpret certain portions of Scripture as I do. They may be right. I don't think so. If I thought so, I'd be one of them. But, you know, that's where it comes to matters of interpretation, we have the right to interpret Scripture. And so we ought to give each other that right. Does it mean then that there's only one style of worship that is acceptable? No. 
because we're different. It's a condition of the heart that is most important. So he says one indicator is oneness. That we have the same mind, same love, same spirit. That oneness, there should be that sense of oneness within us. Then he mentions humility in verse number 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Humility is an indication of unity. That's hard for a lot of us, isn't it? Oh, you look humble. I, I, but I know some of you. It's hard. In fact, I, I heard about a pastor who was just so humble. I mean, he's just very humble in a little church. Just very humble. Church wanted to recognize his humility, and so they gave him a plaque recognizing his humility. And when he hung it on the wall, they fired him for pride. One of the indicators is humility. It's negatively expressed in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness, humility means that I don't only think about my own interest. Gary Smalley wrote, the most important thing we can do towards building loving, lasting relationships is to learn how to honor others. So selfishness and then empty conceit. Now, this refers to a person who desires glory for himself but does not deserve it. Empty conceit. There are a lot of people who are guilty of empty conceit. It's not that they are not conceited. They are conceited, but it's empty. They are conceited, but there is no reason for it. Bob Ashcraft said that that is, that is characteristic of this generation that has been referred to as the me generation. Everything revolves around me. It, re it revolves around what I want. He said, it is uh, get all you can, my way or the highway. If it feels good, do it. He who dies with the most toys wins, and so forth. That is characteristic of a generation of empty conceit. It's all about me. In fact, we sing that song sometimes, that little chorus sometimes. It's all about you, Jesus. I've told Steve before. We probably ought to change that and sing, it's all about me, Jesus. Because usually it is. Empty conceit. And so the indicators of unity is oneness, humility, and helpfulness. Look at verse number four. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Christians are to be helpful. If there's to be unity, there's to be helpful. Barbara Porter sent me a story. Two older men, they were in their 70s, were at Walmart. And uh, they had their little shopping carts, and they were pushing their shopping carts. One was coming down one aisle, and the other was coming down the other aisle. And it just so happened that they arrived at the end together, and they turned, and when they turned, they ran into each other, their carts into each other. One of them immediately paused. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't see. So the truth is, I wasn't paying any attention. So I, was, I was looking for my wife, and I was preoccupied. The other gentleman said, what a coincidence. I was looking for my wife, too. And I wasn't paying any attention. He said, what does your wife look like? He said, well, she's 27 years old. She's tall. She has red hair, blue eyes. She's wearing white shorts and a blue blouse. What does your wife look like? Maybe we can look together, he said. Doesn't matter. Let's look for yours. We're to help each other. 
So indication of Christian unity is oneness, humility, helpfulness. And then Paul mentions some challenging characteristics of Christian unity. There is the challenge of submission in verse number 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ was willing to submit himself to the Father. Even though the Bible says that he was equal to God the Father because he is a part of the Godhead, He submitted himself to the Father, and that's what he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed and came to that time when he says, Not my will, but thine be done. There was that struggle that was going on within Jesus. Father, if there's some way for man to be saved other than my death on the cross, other than my suffering, then let this cut pass from me. But then he submitted himself to the Father, Not my will, but thine be done. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible teaches us that the Christian is to be submissive. Children submissive to their parents. Citizens submissive to their government. The church submissive to the Lord. We are to be submissive. That's a, that's a challenge for us, but that is a part of being a Christian. There's a challenge of being a servant in verse number 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men. The Bible says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He became a servant. You see, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 prophesied that when the Messiah came, that he was going to come as a servant. But that's not what the people were looking for. They were looking for a political leader to set them free. And so they rejected him. The Bible says that he came to his own, his own received him not. But Jesus fulfilled that. He came as a servant. And the Bible says that we also are to be servants. And that's hard for us. Even the disciples argued about who was going to be the greatest. Lord, which one is going to be the greatest here? And most of us want to be the greatest, not a servant. And yet that's what the Lord has called us to be, servants. There's a challenge of sacrifice in verse number 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice vicariously. The Bible says that he took all of my sins upon himself. He took all of your sins upon himself. He died there as a sacrifice for us. Paul gave his life as a sacrifice in verse number 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy for you all. Paul gave his life to Christ as a sacrifice. He gave himself to the people as a sacrifice. And we also are called to sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. It's interesting that it says after that, which is your reasonable service of worship. A lot of times we limit worship to the feeling we get in the music or something of that nature. The Bible says that we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. 
Simon Peter wrote, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So the Bible says then that we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What is that? What are spiritual sacrifices? Prayer. That's one. You know, Steve had us to pray earlier to spend some time in prayer. Do you understand that whenever you pray that that it comes up to God as a spiritual sacrifice to his nostrils? Prayer. Praise. Folks, it's not just singing songs. It's not just enduring something I don't like. Our praise is a spiritual sacrifice. Repentance. David wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Let me conclude. Look back at verse number 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you'll notice there in verse number 9 that it begins with the word therefore, which refers us back to what has been said. So when you see therefore, it refers you back. So what's he saying? He says that Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He gave his life as a sacrifice, and then he was exalted. Look again at verse number 9. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, gave himself as a sacrifice, and then he was exalted. Peter wrote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let me tell you a story that Charles Bagnell sent to me, but it illustrates this point. There was a small company, and the CEO called the vice presidents in, the officers in. And he said to them, it has come time for me to step down and one of you men to step up and become the CEO. He said, so next year I'm going to step down and one of you will take my place. He said, but the way we're going to determine who that person is will be a little unusual. And he handed to each one of them a seed. And he said, what I want you to do is to take this seed and plant it, nurture it, take care of it. And next year at this time, we'll come together and I'll look at what you've done. And we'll make the determination from that. Well, every man took his seed and he went home and they got their little pots and they planted the seed and they fertilized it and watered it and so forth. There was one man named Jim and he and his wife went to the store and they bought a little pot and they they planted the seed. A few weeks had gone by, the guys at work were talking about how their seeds were growing and the flowers they were producing and how beautiful the plants were and so forth. But nothing was happening with Jim's. He continued to water it, continued to fertilize it and so forth. Time goes on, six months had passed, and now all the men are talking about the plants that they're growing and the trees that they're growing and the color of them and all of that. And Jim still was doing nothing. 
The year had passed, and it was time for them to come together and the CEO to look at what they had done. And so they came, they, before they got there, Jim had talked to his wife. He said, yeah, I don't have anything. All I've got is this pot. Nothing grew. He said, I'm not going to go. She said, no, you need to go. He said, you need to be honest about it. You did your best, and you need to go. So he took his little pot that had nothing in it except soil and went. And here they are. They've got their trees. They've got their flowers. They've got all of their plants. And the CEO came. He looked at them and commented how beautiful they were. And he looked back and he saw Jim and brought him up. And he said, what happened? And he said, I'm sorry. He said, I, I planted that seed and I watered it and I fertilized it and I did everything I knew. But nothing happened. And the CEO told everybody to sit down except for Jim. And he said, when I gave you the seed... They were dead. They had been boiled. There was no life in them. So what all of you did was to get a seed to substitute for the one that I gave you, except for Jim. All of you are capable of being the CEO, but to be the CEO of the company requires integrity and honesty. And the only one who has honesty and integrity is Jim. So he is your next CEO. That story was a reminder to me, folks, that we do what is right. You do what is right. And God will exalt you at His time. The thing that is important is that you and I do what is right and leave the results to God. Gracious Father, we come to a time of invitation. And, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, your spirit might apply it to our hearts, that we might examine our lives. And I pray, Father, for Christian people who are trying to take shortcuts to be impressive, some who might be filled with empty conceit. And, Lord, that we might understand we have been called to be servants. We have been called to offer our lives as sacrifices, that we might glorify you. Today I pray for those who have never come to know Christ as Savior, that even this day they might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand, sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Jesus, the invitation is that you come to receive Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. You're welcome here. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing, you come, I'll reach as you do.